We will now call upon our brother Dennis Goet to deliver the second class in the series on Bible Men the Way They Were, entitled Balaam, A Man for All Seasons. Good morning, everyone. You will remember well, of course, the story of Balaam. I realize that. But just as a starting point today, I will recollect for you the main theme. The narrative is concerned with Balaam's relationship with Balak, king of Moab, um, the border people of Moab. They lived on the east side of the river Jordan. And from time to time, of course, they came into contact with the nation of Israel. Indeed, one writer has suggested that the Moabites were, to the people of Israel, uh, rather what the Red Indians were to the first pioneers who settled this land as they passed through Indiana. Well, now, it means that King Balak had watched the immigrant settlers winding their way across the upland territories of his land and consequently he was more than concerned and so he decided to invoke supernatural help and he seeks the help of a celebrated holy man to curse the people of Israel and he is willing to pay a good price for the benefit evidently Balaam is not a Hebrew because he was in the land of Moab before the Hebrews came it's a strange case in a way of a man who is not a Hebrew but has a knowledge of and has contact with the Hebrews' God. The narrative revealed that his contact with God was effective, and in some way there was given to Balaam the prophetic gift. The outworking of this relationship between Balak and Balaam and God is our means of forming a conclusion about the prophet who was a man for all seasons. And I hope proof that no man can serve two masters. So, with that little introduction, I bring you, brethren and sisters, to, first of all, to the inspired judgment of the New Testament on the character of Balaam. And it is contained in three passages, which I would like to read to you, and ask you to notice the words carefully as we read them. They are the words of the Apostle Peter, of Jude, and of Jesus. First Peter, 2 Peter 2, verse 14 to 16. 2 Peter 2, verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, Enticing unsteadfast souls, having a heart exercised in covetousness, children of cursing, forsaking the right way, they went astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the hire of wrongdoing. But he was rebuked for his own transgression, a dumb ass spake with a man's voice, and stayed the madness of the prophet. Jude, verse 11. Jude, verse 11. Woe unto them, for they went in the way of Cain, 
and ran riotously in the era of Balaam or Hire and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Revelation 2 verse 14 words of Jesus to Pergamon but I have a few things against thee because thou hast there some that hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balaam to cast the stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication well there you are that is the inspired judgment of the New Testament writers on the character of Balaam. Now when you think about the words carefully, the words we have just read, brothers and sisters, there emerges clear evidence that Balaam was not only a false prophet, but indeed a wicked man. The words are very severe, and the sentence passed upon him is one of unmitigated condemnation. But here is something to ponder. I want to submit to you that if you could have read the story of Balaam in the Old Testament, to never have read the New Testament comment upon it, you would hardly have come to such a severe judgment. You might have thought that Balaam was a man of weakness and in some sense a vacillating character. Um, you might have thought in some ways he was repulsive, but I feel sure that the judgment of the New Testament is not the sentence that we would have passed standing by ourselves. We might have said that though Balaam had his weaknesses, there, there is in his story something which invites our sympathy. Very often he is a man with like passions with ourselves. Some may have seen in him evidence of conscientiousness. Uh, you could discern evidence of firmness in the face of the persistent temptations which came from Balak. I mean, when he realizes that he is doing wrong, immediately he offers to retrace his steps when he is about to undertake a journey um, he will not do it uh, without first asking divine guidance uh, he confesses earnestly that he can only do what God intends shall happen and beyond that he has no power he prays to die the death of the righteous he could more than once have practiced a deception upon Balak but he will not do it it seems that nothing will make him tell a lie. So there are things about him which are reasonable, almost attractive, commendable. And yet, here we have this word on the page of the New Testament, the inspired judgment of the Lord and his apostles. And when you read it, you are conscious that it tells of melancholy failure and dark doom. So this is the first and interesting um, conclusion to draw right at the beginning when thinking about Balaam. It is possible, you see, for men who appear respectable and conscientious and honorable and gifted and religious and sincere and capable of uttering fine words, it's possible for them, nevertheless, in the sight of God, to be a failure and not a failure, and to be heirs of perdition. It shows us also that underneath the externals of Balaam's character, there must have been features which in the sight of God caused him to deserve judgment and became 
consequently an accursed man. Now our business this morning then is to try to see the things which underlie the error of Balaam in spite of what at first sight may seem to be a life not too reprehensible and in some ways inviting our compassion. We've got to look underneath that. We've got, as it were, to look more incisively at what we are reading in the Old Testament. And I'm going to suggest to you, therefore, that there were two elements in the error of Balaam which, um, in a way, is a revelation. The first error was perversion. Perversion. And the second was selfishness. And I shall try to show how these two things are manifested in the life of this man. So, think first of all of perversion. By perversion, I mean, of course, the perversion of the great gift of prophecy. You see, in ancient times, there were men who set themselves apart to act as spell workers, either to bless or curse or to foretell events. It was quite a common thing. And people used to go to these necromancers to achieve their ends, or so they thought, in one direction or another. So it was with King Balaam. He sent to Pethor for Balaam. Of course, there were other so-called prophets. They were impostors. Clever men, perhaps, but with unusual sagacity. But in this case, the prophet whose services were being sought was a servant of God. His gifts were divinely bestowed. Now we know that it is always the purpose of the prophets of God to glorify him. They didn't represent themselves ever as being inspired because they were better or nobler than other people. Um, very often they said they were more unworthy of the great honor than other men. And uh, they shrank from it. And always they were confessing that they were utterly dependent upon God and apart from him they, were, they could do nothing. Now Balaam was one of God's prophets called, as it would seem, to the holy enterprise of glorifying God. And yet, brothers and sisters, when you read his story carefully, it seems to me you cannot escape the feeling that so much is being done and so much is being said to show the difference between Balaam and other men. That is to say, to draw attention to himself, to represent himself as a mystic man, to portray himself as one who has commerce with heaven. Uh, he builds altars, he, he uses enchantments. The whole process seems more calculated to glorify Balaam than to glorify God. He looks as though he wanted to be admired. He was glad to be feared and sought after. Do you not think that perhaps Balak had seen through something of Balaam's nature when he said to him in verse 17 of Numbers 22, Am I not able to promote thee unto honor? It's an interesting sentence. Am I not able to promote thee unto honor? as though this was something where Balaam could most easily be touched. His honor, it mattered to him very much. And almost you might catch a glimpse of the fact that Balaam half suspected his own weakness when he said to Balak in verse 18, if Balak would give me his house full of gold and silver. It's interesting. If Balak would give me his house full of gold and silver. You see, sometimes men boast about that part of their character 
where they know themselves to be weakest. In other words, they wish to make up in words what they lack in strength. And Balaam was saying, in effect, the very last thing you can do with me is to tempt me with wealth. You know, you, I've met men like this. They say, don't, don't offer me money. Well, you just try it. They're denying the very thing that secretly they hope for. Have you ever met that? So it seems to me this is what Balaam is saying here. The last thing you can tempt me with is money. Well, as I say, it's happened that men, it's happened that men who begin their careers with this noble, this noble and genuine indifference to wealth and worldly honour, later on when they are sought, sought after, later on when they rise in, in the world's um, honour, step by step, bit by bit, as it were, they, they gain preeminence and and that first and early love of the truth, that genuine consideration for honesty is, is sacrificed at last to a love of notoriety and a love of the truth. And it passes into a love of influence and a love of worldly honor. And so it was with Balaam. I mean, we have Peter's words inscribed there indelibly. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. That's what Peter said. For the sake of his own glory, he was ready to make his prophetic gifts subservient to the meanest purposes, even against his own conscience. A man who wanted to please himself and hoped that he would not, in the doing of it, offend God. Seems to me to be a man who is not content with the first clear indication of his duty, but wants second thoughts so as to justify himself. You see... On the first occasion when he sought the divine guidance from God about Israel, what Balak wanted him to do, God spoke to him quite plainly, said, it's in verse 12 of Numbers 22, he spoke to him quite plainly and said, Thou shalt not go with them, I shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. Now nothing could be plainer. Nothing could be more unequivocal than that. And yet when Balak sends again with a, a larger bribe, when he's making a better offer, Balaam goes back, goes back to God again, and uh, puts it to God again. It's evident that Balaam wanted to go with Balak. He wanted to do this without offending God. Seems that he would have given a great deal to be rid of the duty of, uh, that had been imposed upon him. And I, you can just get the feeling that he is going to God not to learn what God's will is about Israel, but to get it altered to suit his own case. See, very often in the matter of duty, our first conception of it is, is the right one. Our first conception is very often clear and certain. It's only afterwards when we get involved in the mazes and the sophistries of wishing and wanting and arguing and disputing that what at first seemed quite clear then becomes indistinct. There's a great deal of truth, I think, in the old saying that in the course of duty, first thoughts are best. And haven't you noticed this, brothers and sisters, that though at first God said to Balaam, 
he was not to go with Balaam. When Balaam kept trying to justify going, God allowed him to go. Now that may seem to be a strange contradiction. God said no at first, and then after I said, oh, Unlike God, most unlike and strange. No, not really. Because underlying it is an awful principle, which we ought always to remember when we are thinking about the waywardness of the human heart, which persistently seeks that which is ungodly. The principle is this. God sometimes sends a man on to reap the fruit of his own willfulness. There's a, a verse in Psalm 18, verse 26. Solemn words by David. Psalm 18, verse 26. About God, it says, With the pure thou wilt show thyself pure, and with the froward thou wilt show thyself froward. God speaks to men clearly and is very patient with their slowness to respond. But if the voice of God is continually and willfully silenced in a man's life, then at last the voice of God utters a terrible permission. It, the voice of God says, yes, go, go. And a man goes on to reap the fruit of his own willful folly. There's a sentence in the New Testament which tells it, God gave them up. Gave them up. So observe how the perversion willed by Balaam came at last to not only the perversion of his prophetic gift, but indeed the perversion of his own mind and heart. You notice those words in 2 Peter 2 verse 16, what they read, it said, the dumb ass speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. See, every word is important in the Bible. The madness of the prophet. The, the inspired writer describes Balaam's condition as madness. The dumbass speaking with the man's voice. Just in passing, I, I, I noticed um, when I was reading this 22nd chapter of Numbers, I noticed, speaking of the ass speaking with the man's voice, I noticed what seemed to me to be a strange reversal of voices. I hope you'll forgive me for this, what I'm going to say. If you don't forgive me, I shall have to get out. But, um, Numbers 22, verse 28. The Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and he said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam said unto the ass, Because thou hast mocked me. I would there were a sword in mine hand, for now I had killed thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am not I thine ass, upon which thou hast ridden all thy life long unto this day? Was I ever wont to do this unto thee? So there is the ass speaking with the man's voice. And it looked to me as though the man speaking with the ass's voice. For all he could say was, nay. Well, I say, I, I hope you'll forgive me for that. 
But that's just by the way. It just enforces the point. What I wanted to say really was, you see, here we have a man with a dislocated and unbalanced mind. And it was this dislocated, unbalanced mind which was really directing his steps. See, when you see what Balaam did, you, you see something which is common in the case where men have committed themselves to a false position. When men have committed themselves to a false position, when obstacles stand in the way of securing their false ambition, they, they lay the blame on others. This is common enough. They, they lay the blame upon circumstances, when really, all the time, the blame is, is on themselves. Balaam blamed the ass. And in the course of it, his judgment and his equanimity departed from him. He loses his temper, he vents his rage on the innocent animal. But I say, who has not seen it before, brothers and sisters? Have you never seen it? A grown man, when he is discovered in a wrong course and when he is um, opposed, he begins to reason like a child. He becomes furious and unbalanced and, and reveals the dislocation which the wrong course has worked in his soul. I've seen it. You've seen it. So it was with Balaam. His outward unreasonableness is counterpart of his inward wrongfulness. And then notice one last thing under this heading of perversion. The angel said, go on. And even then there was still hope for Balaam. He, he was to go on, but only to speak the word of God faithfully. He was to do God's will, careless of the consequences. And looking back on the sad story of Balaam, we see that he who had been false so long uh, could not bring himself to be true at last. Now that is the terror of perversion. As it was, he, he had set the seal on his own doom. That's part of the terror of perversion. Men sometimes complain that their lives drive sometimes complain that their destiny drives them on almost against their will. And they lay the blame on God. They curse the circumstances which drive them. And they too easily forget that it was they themselves that put themselves in the way of the very forces which are now driving them on. The awful process whereby at last men are compelled to be openly what they are inwardly. The wine press of life, the terror of perversion, this was the error of them. Well now then, so much for perversion, let's think now of the other element in his failure. I suggested to you that was selfishness. Now, he went with Balak, he built his altars, he offered sacrifices, he tried his enchantments to discover whether God would permit him to curse Israel, and knew without doubt that he could not curse Israel because God said they were to be blessed. And, as you know, he, he looks down from the hilltop and sees the camp of Israel in in fine array, the tents are gleaming in the sunlight. 
and, and he realizes the solitary grandeur of God's people. This is in Numbers 23, if you wanted to know the reference. Numbers 23, verse 9, he says about them, that they shall dwell alone and not be reckoned among the nations. Out of the mouth of Balaam, a wonderful truth is compelled. Verse 9, 23 numbers, they shall dwell alone and not be reckoned among the nation. And he realizes that they are a nation far too numerous to give Balak any hope of victory over them. He said in verse 10 of Numbers 23, who can count the dust of Jacob and the, and the number of the fourth part of Israel? He realizes that there are no enchantments which can offset the righteousness which God intends for his elect. In verse 23 he says, Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. Numbers 23, verse 23. Now all this he realizes, and all this he proclaims as he looks down on the camp of the Lord's house. And yet here is a strange thing. Balaam, knowing all this and proclaiming it, goes on to try to blind himself to the truth. He himself would not utter a falsehood, as I said before. He could well have deceived Balak at the beginning by uttering some strange incantation and performing some enchantment uh, and could have collected the reward knowing quite well that the outcome would not be altered one whit. He could have done that, but he didn't. In this respect, I suppose you could say he was a man of veracity. But when he is faced with the truth about Israel, he tries to blind himself to it. You remember what he did? He went to another hill where he will not see the camp of Israel so well, nor to such startling advantage, so that he may be able to feel perhaps that the truth about Israel's blessedness is not so real, it's not so enforced upon his imagination. He thinks that if he can get to a position where the glory of Israel is diminished in some way, then he might be able to get rid of the stubborn realization that whatever he does, they are to be blessed. Just trying to blind himself to the truth. A man who is in some respects true and yet willing to unlearn the truth for, for selfish ends. Now this is the story of human nature. He, he is a man of like passions with ourselves in a way. This is Bible men the way they were. How often have men been willing to benefit from that which is false and wrong, so long as they don't have to come face to face with the source of their benefit or their gain? How often? It was so in this, I say it with respect, it was so in, in, in the days of the slave trade in this land. And indeed in Great Britain. There were religious men in England praising God in their churches and becoming rich through the sale of other men's bodies and not bothering to ask very much about it. Many a landlord in the bad old days received the rent from his agent without wishing to ask his agent what methods he used to get it from the poor tenant, what blackmail he used. There are those who take very great care not to know too much about the source of the things which benefit them. They are ready secretly to blind themselves to the truth for the sake of personal advancement. Now Balaam was like this. This is the nature of his selfishness. 
And then at last it was manifested perhaps in the worst thing of all. The last expedient to gain his will. When he realized that he could not change God, he tried to change Israel so that God would cease to love them and cease to bless them. It's in Numbers, the, the, the evidence is in Numbers 31, verses 15 to 16, where you can draw the conclusion that, well, just look at it. Numbers. Moses said unto them, Have you saved all the women alive? Behold, these cause the children, these are the women of Moab, see. Behold, these cause the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam. It drops out. It drops out almost artlessly. Behold, these cause the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peel. And so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman that hath no man by lying with him. He recommended to Balak to use the fascination of the women of Moab to entice the Israelites into idolatry. He tries to reverse God's will by reversing the character of God's people. God will not bring curse upon those who are good and therefore Balaam tries to make them bad in order to achieve his ends. He tries to make the people of God bring curse upon themselves since he cannot do it directly himself. And to some extent he succeeded. This perhaps was the worst act of all. This was perhaps the most ignoble manifestation of his self. Ready to doom a whole nation so as to secure his own ambition. Is it not a strange thing that in some things Balaam was careful to do right and yet in this one great thing he was diabolically careless. No wonder Revelation 2 speaks so sternly of this final act of folly. Do you remember what it said? The reference was, what is it, Revelation 2, verse 14. Remember what it said. It said, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there some that hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, reaching sacrifice to idols and to commit fornication. You have confirmation of it there. He, he, he um, enticed Balak to cast this stumbling block before God speaking so that they became idolaters and fornicators. That was his final act of fire. Again, this is true to life. This is how men are. 
there are those who would not wish to do a thing or a wrong thing open. Yet they are glad to win wrongly if the wrong is kept secret. Have you never seen it? No, they were careful not to do something openly. Very careful. But they're quite satisfied to benefit from the wrong if it's secret. And there are those who would strongly resent being called traitors. And yet, nevertheless, they will nurse in their own lives the very thing which the cause they are supposed to be fighting for is seeking to, to outlaw. In their own lives, they will nurse the very thing which they're supposed to be outlawing. And that's a traitor. A traitor is not a man who fights against you in the open. He is an enemy. But not a traitor. A man is a traitor is a man who being with you on your side lets in one of your enemies secretly. That's a traitor. Two faced and double minded, willing to work their wrong through the weakness of other men. Now this was bad. That's what I'm saying. This was bad. Now observe the master cause which lies at the root of all Balaam's fault. I'm saying to you, it is selfishness. That's it. Balaam's self. The honor of Balaam. The reputation of Balaam. The wealth of Balaam. The destiny of Balaam. So, at last he is forced not to desire the goodness and righteousness. That's the awful thing. He is a prophet. He is supposed to desire that the things which are good and noble and true should prosper and should be established. But as I say, in the end, he is forced to be opposite. He is, he is forced not to desire that goodness and righteousness should prosper. And the reason is because his own personal selfish interests are best favoured by the failure of others and the failure of goodness. What an awful thing to be, what an awful, inexorable situation to be in. That your own selfish ends, if they are to be achieved, must be achieved by the failure of goodness and the failure of those who ought to be true and will be true if you leave them alone. A man who could not forget himself in God's cause who could not resign himself to God's purpose because he was compelled at last, because of his own nature, to think first of himself and his own advancement. So, how shall we sum up the error of Well, this is what I have put down as a summation. He was a man who knew God and had communication with him and prophesied in God's name. He had a clear view of how much better is the blessing of God and righteousness than the mere gaining of temporary honor and wealth. And yet we discover, we discover him wanting to use the highest gifts for the meanest purposes for the sake of human honor and selfish gain. That is why the New Testament judgment is so severe. With the desperation of a gambler, he went on in a course which he must have known was fraught with danger. 
He was driven by selfishness till at last he was responsible for tempting the nation to sin and to ruin. He thought of himself as a man superior to others. And yet he must have known that Balak had judged him to be a man who had his place. And so he came to be despised at last by those who were his inferiors. And at last in, and this is a strange thing, isn't it? At last in wonderful words of feeling and poetry, he was forced to prophesy about a grandeur and a righteousness and a destiny for the people of God in which he himself had no share, and in which he himself could possibly have no part. So in the end, the very things which he had bartered all his life, as it were, the, the very things for which he had bartered all his future, were lost and dissipated. Indeed, the final act of his story epitomizes the whole of it. The battle with Israel, which Balak feared would one day come to pass, came to pass. And in that battle, Balaam fought. And he fought on the side of Balak against God. You can read the end of the story in Numbers 31, verse 8. Numbers 31, verse 8. A sad sentence. And Israel warred against the Midianites, as the Lord commanded Moses, and they slew all the males. And Balaam also, the son of Beor, they slew the sword. This story of the man for all seasons is a story with a sad ending. And how at last, brothers and sisters, shall we measure it? Well, it seems to me that first and last, one thing appears uppermost in the revelation of this narrative. At the risk of weary, I stress it again, Balaam's self. The honor of Balaam as a true prophet. So he is careful not to lie. The wealth of Balaam, therefore the nation of Israel can be sacrificed in order to secure it. And, and, and I'm fortified in this assessment by returning to the words of the New Testament. Remember what Peter said, he loved the wages. Notice the word. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. And in Jude 11, woe unto them who run greedily after the error of faith. Love the wages greedily after the error of pain. So at the root of his failure was this curse of selfishness. He, even in his sublimest visions, his egotism breaks through. Let me die the death of the righteous. I shall behold him, but not nigh. See, the nobler prophets of Israel seek to lose themselves in the glory of their revelation so that their own personalities are forgotten. Indeed, Moses, when he thought God would um, destroy the people, said, Yet now if thou would forgive their sins, block me, I pray thee, out of thy book. 
Moses was willing to be nothing, to be forgotten, to be lost for the sake of others. And Paul said the same thing, I have continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. But this is not the anxiety of Balaam. Balaam's anxiety is, how will it advance me? He loved the wages of unrighteousness. He ran greedily. It seems that not for one moment, even the sublimest can Balaam forget himself in the tools of God. So, you see, we are driven, I think, to the conclusion that the root failure of his life, after all, he perverted the noble gift of prophecy, but the root failure of his life was selfishness. At heart, he was a compromiser driven to compromise by greed. And his character is a strange complexity of opposing forces. And how can I put it to you? There, there are not realities which you can clearly identify, are there? Not anywhere. But, but semblances of this and that. I mean, he seems to be a man of integrity, and yet somehow he's not. He looks like an obedient prophet, and yet he's willing to disobey. He says Israel will triumph, and yet he's tempting the nation to sin and crime and ruin. And at last, forced to tell of the grandeur which he couldn't share in the righteousness in which he would have no part. At last, his mind is like his life, torn and distracted and, and distorted. And you can imagine him rushing at last with insane frenzy, realizing that all was lost, and, and the things for which he bartered his life, as I said before, are now gone, comes to his end upon the spears of the people he, he sought to corrupt. So let's learn the truth from the failure of Balaam. And what is it? Well, this. It is one thing to have great opportunities. It is one thing to have access to great powers. It is one thing to have sublime feelings and great passions. But it is another thing to live truly and humbly and selflessly. And of the two, my comrades, the latter is the vital thing. For you may have great opportunities and great powers and sublime feelings and great passions, and utterly fine. That's the message. Let us therefore take care, and let us take stock with reverent fear. See how a man may utter fine words. See how a man may uphold orthodox truths. And yet somehow in the inmost part of him he's untouched and unredeemed by the very things he is saying and proclaiming. I suppose it's an awful thing for a man to talk about the truth and speculate about it and never do it. 
He is false through and through. Now this really was the error of the man for all seasons. <laughs>